Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Wow. Hold on. What was that? Was that an advertisement that played before the Peoples and Things intro? That's never happened before. What gives? Hey everybody, welcome to Peoples and Things. We're very excited to say that we have just joined the New Books Network, which is the largest network of academic podcasts in the world. The NBN currently has over 17,000 interviews with scholars, experts, and authors, gets over 2 million downloads per month, and is in the top 1% of all podcast networks in the world. You should check it out. The New Books Network supports itself through advertising, so you'll be hearing some of that in our episodes going forward. But honestly, I always thought ads would be coming if we were going to keep this show afloat. We'll be dropping a bonus episode sometime this week or next, explaining the partnership and also letting you know about some of our plans for the next year. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I think the topic of race and technology is extremely important, not only for understanding our own time, but for understanding modern history in general. This is true both within the United States and in the world abroad. For far too long, there has been far too little work on race and technology, though mercifully, this appears to be changing pretty quickly. Hallelujah. Additionally, and this is sad to say, a lot of stuff written on race and technology recently is pretty thin and not great, especially on the empirical front. Like, if the heart of your argument hinges on Google image searches, you may have just served us weak tea. But again, thankfully and mercifully, there is solid work out there and more is being published every year. If you stick around, you'll be hearing interviews on more of these books on this show. You may know that I am currently working on a new book project called A Good History of Shit Jobs, which examines the changing nature of work in the United States from the 1970s to the present. One of the themes I'm very interested in in this project is how deindustrialization and other economic changes affected black workers, especially urban black workers. You could say that looking into this topic brought me back home because even the most cursory research turned up the book featured in this episode, Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America by historian Joe William Trotter Jr. It was bringing me back home because Joe is the Giant Eagle University Professor of History and founder and director of the Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy, otherwise known as CAUSE, 
at Carnegie Mellon University, where I did my doctoral work. My interests at that time were pretty far afield from Joe's, but I have always respected his work. Indeed, his first book, Black Milwaukee, The Making of Industrial Proletariat 1915 to 1945, has in the years since I graduated become a very important work for me. Not only because it is simply a good book, but because its appendices include a historiographical essay where Joe lays out how historians and other scholars have thought about his topic since the late 19th century. I believe that essay is a masterpiece, and I use it as an exemplar to teach graduate students how to do such writing. Workers on Arrival is the history of urban black workers since enslaved black people arrived on these shores, and it comes right up to the present. Now, Joe doesn't emphasize technology as a theme in the book, but if you approach it with the eyes of a historian of technology on, it's easy enough to see. This long history is a story of black workers laboring in farm fields, establishing themselves as craftspeople, maintaining cities, migrating to urban centers, especially northern ones, becoming industrial hands, fighting for rights and the dignity of work, and facing and resisting the costs of deindustrialization and the rise of the service economy. This is a story that goes way back, but it's also the story of today. It's our story. I had a wonderful time talking to Joe, who I have an enormous amount of respect for. I bet you're going to have a wonderful time listening to him. Hey, get excited. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, uh, Lee. <laughs> so Workers on Arrival is is a great book. I'm going to be using it in my undergraduate and graduate teaching for years to come. And I've also found it very useful for my own research. So when you explain to people mm -hmm. what it's about, what do you say and what were you trying to do with it? You know, that's a good uh, lead off question. Um, what I'm trying to do is very much situated within the moment. Um, you know, just before 2019, as you know, was the 400th anniversary of African-American who on the record first landed in Jamestown, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so that, uh, so that the book itself is a product of many years of research, you know, over my entire career, I've been working on these issues. Yeah. And so I started in earnest to uh, produce this book um, probably about five years before 2019 hit. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I worked feverishly because I wanted to complete this book in time for that um, anniversary. Uh, I knew there would be a lot of public celebration, commemorations of that uh, 400th anniversary of African-American life in the United States. And I wanted to have something on record uh, that would synthesize the Black experience from the beginning of the African-American experience to the yeah. present. And, 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 and so what I wanted to do, though, uh, was to take it in a somewhat different direction than, a, than many other syntheses of Black history uh, take. 
And that is, I decided to privilege the urban dimension mm -hmm. of the black experience and the urban and working class yes. uh, dimension of the African-American experience. And for me, uh, scholars had only just begun, you know, like late 20th, early 20th century to start in earnest uh, treating African-American life uh, from the colonial period forward as also an urban story, not just a rural plantation mm. story of rice, tobacco, and so on, uh, and cotton. It was a story also about the ways in which early Africans inhabited these cities and in many ways helped to construct uh, the urban infrastructure uh, in America. And so that book was designed uh, to address that anniversary yeah. issue, but it was also designed to uh, introduce African-American labor history more forthrightly at the center of the story and to also put the black urban experience yeah. up front. And so that was sort of the basis uh, of that particular um, book. Well, I think you did a wonderful job, man. And um, were there certain kind okay. of popular narratives that you were trying to challenge? I thought I was thinking about, you know, the first paragraph of of, of the uh, introduction or preface. I can't remember. And it was, you know, saying like, you know, like the whole image in our in American culture, sadly, of kind of like black people as takers and, you know, and the yes, white working yes. class is like, you know, somehow put upon <laughs> and all these kinds of things. I mean, were there a number of popular yeah. narratives you're trying to challenge? Well, thank you for bringing that one up. That's another dimension of this story. Uh, this is not just about black workers, but also their relationship mm. uh, to white workers and to American society more generally. Uh, but also it's a story about the black workers' relationship to their own community. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially the emerging elite and people who were educated and property. Uh, but yes, I, I was very concerned about a race. Uh, there was a race agenda, you know, like how has white workers perceived, and American society in general, perceived black, poor, and working class people over a long yeah. period of time. And I'm just struck by the consistency of treating these people as pretty much... Um, like you said, takers mm -hmm. rather than producers. Mm -hmm. um, and that these people in some ways lack a good work ethic, yeah. you know, that they they are not energetic, you know, they are not um, um, uh, builders. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to uh, bring this whole question of productivity of black workers and their contribution to building uh, American society mm -hmm. And, and not only just building the urban infrastructure, uh, and if the story had been about agriculture, it would have been about um, black people building the agricultural infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you think about agriculture, uh, cotton, tobacco, rice, sugar, all of those, the land had to be prepared uh, for the cultivation of these crops. And so that black people were on board to actually pay, carve out you know, the landscape and to create an agricultural and agrarian setting in which black people would then labor within that yeah. setting to produce these staple crops. And so black people were laborers from the beginning in both the, the, the rural and the urban environment. Mm -hmm. And inside the cities, of course, they were also builders. They were laborers on these 
uh, construction projects. Um, and they were also um, maintenance workers. Once the cities got started, yeah. uh, they continued to work uh, to, you know, maintain and upkeep and to clean and to do all those other yeah. things uh, that re cities required. Uh, so, yeah, so there was a story about trying to recover, in a way, the vibrancy of black workers as producers and contributors yeah. uh, to the society in which they were forced uh, initially to live and later on as free people of color. Yeah. Joe, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is kind of turn scholarship into a human story that it's done by human beings and, you know, who have their own personal trajectory. Yeah. So where, let's just start. Where do you grow up, man? Uh, Southern West Virginia. Oh. I'm, I'm a product. Yes, I'm a product of a coal mining family. Okay. My, my father was a coal miner. Wow. Um, and uh, he worked in the coal mines for uh, over 20 some years before his death. Wow. Uh, and so I, and I, I come from a large family. My family, I had, um, there were 14 children yes. in my family, four, four boys and, uh, 10 That's a girls. lot of sisters, man. Uh, a lot of sisters. <laughs> and, and I get the benefit yeah. of that. It's been a great, it's been a great ride for yeah. me. They, uh, because I had five sisters older than me and five sisters younger than me. And so in a way I had to develop a kind of sensitivity to the power of women, mm. because you know, a young boy can't go challenging, you know, sisters who are some, mm. you know, <laughs> three, four, five, six yes. years older, so they they could check that <laughs> that masculinity, you know. <laughs> well, that's good for so, us. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so yes, I, 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 I really, and but the, growing up in West Virginia, by the way, um, just. Um, back in November, mm. you know, this earlier this month, um, my nephews um, and my three brothers, we got together to take them down uh, to the coal mining area that uh, I that we grew up yeah. in. You know, their uncles grew up in, and we actually visited and toured a demonstration mine, mm. and and there were about fifteen of us, and we had a great tour, about two hours inside a coal mine that has been refurbished and made safe as mines can yes, be yes. <laughs> for tourists to take. And so, um, so yeah, so that heritage is important to me and it really helped to shape the kind of historian I became and the kind of issues I would have. Yeah, that's great, man. And I, you know, you're, you have a book on coal, right? That's your one book I haven't looked at, right? Is that right? Yes, that's uh -huh. right. Coal class and color. Cool. That was my second book, by the way. And I think that, you know, I didn't want to do, you know, that close-up story yes. first, you know. I And and I had become much more uh, involved in trying to understand the earth. Right. So that when I went to graduate school, yeah. the cities were on my mind. Yeah, please. You know? I was going to ask you how you became a professional historian. So tell us that story. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. When I went to graduate, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're uh, asking a question that I'm happy to talk about. Um, when I went to graduate school, um, and I went to graduate school in the mid-70s, mm -hmm. um, and I had taught high school for six okay. years. My wife, yeah, my wife and I, we, we taught high school together. But although she was at a junior high, I was in, in a high school. Um, 
And after six years, we decided uh, that if we were ever going to graduate school, we probably needed to go then. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, she was really persuasive on persuasive on that. And I I got on board with it. And uh, I wanted to go to graduate school, but I also liked making a living. Yeah. And we knew we would have to give up our teaching job in order to, you know, scale back and just, uh, you know, concentrate on yeah. studying. So when I went to graduate school, I went with the ideal that I wanted to do uh, an urban mm -hmm. study. And so I had both of us, we went to a small Lutheran school called Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Okay. And it's a Lutheran school. And Carthage, by the way, was originally located in Carthage, Illinois. Mm. Um, but the city of Kenosha gave them an incentive to actually move the campus from Carthage, Illinois, out to a beautiful lakeside campus in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mm. So that's where we went to school. And that's where I met a lot of my friends uh, who lived in the Milwaukee area. Okay. Also, many of them lived in Chicago, but I wasn't about to do Chicago uh, considering the wealth of, of documentation it's too much, of black right? life in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just said we need some alternative yes, study. Exactly. You know? so, so I selected Milwaukee and I stayed with it. I never considered doing Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but the irony is that much of Chicago's um, migration fed into uh, the Milwaukee yeah. migration. So people often had a stopover in Chicago or some other small industrial town. Then they moved to Milwaukee. Yeah. And so, yeah, so when I got to graduate school, um, uh, cities were on my mind. I I hadn't given very much thought at all to the idea that there was a study waiting to be done in the area where I grew yeah. up. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to ask you about Black Milwaukee, which is a really important book to me, as I've told you, I use, I'll talk more about the interpretive essay at the end of it in a second, but uh, I use it in my okay. teaching with grad students a lot. And, you know, I wanted to bring okay. it up because I think it's, you know, it's very, Workers on Arrival is just, you know, another part of this long trajectory that you've been working on. And so, you know, tell yeah. people a bit about Black Milwaukee. Is it fair to say it's about this transition from rural? I mean, it's about the Great Migration in many ways, and it's about this transition yeah. from rural agricultural work to urban industrial work, right? Exactly. And I, yeah, I, again, that's my foundational book. I yeah. mean, it is for, it is for, I uh, had the opportunity to think deeply about uh, the black urban experience. Yeah. Uh, when I went to graduate school, by the way, um, I was coming from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, my wife and I, we were both uh, active in community organizing okay. in Kenosha. Mm -hmm. And and at that time, the Black Power Movement was in full swing. And by the mid-70s, however, you know, like this whole idea of race first mm -hmm. and the way Black people conceptualize their future, you know, and their politics. Yes. Um, and so there's a great emphasis on racial unity, um, you know, solidarity among people of yes. color. Um, and so, but by the time, um, by the mid-70s, um, a lot of critics had started to raise the class question uh -huh. and to really, yeah, they started to question this idea of overwhelming emphasis on the racial dynamic in Black life. And they started to say, until we get a handle 
on these class dimensions of African-American yeah. life, we're going to have an incomplete understanding of black history and also an incomplete understanding of yeah. American history. And so that's what sort of drove that's my interesting. study of Milwaukee. Huh. Yeah. And I, and, and so I had to really find a way to break out. Um, no, not totally break with it, but to really, you know, complicate yes. my racial understanding of the black experience uh, by bringing in the way in which uh, African-Americans, for example, the scholarship that dominated the literature when I studied in graduate school. And by the way, I went to graduate studies at Minnesota and there was a man named Alan Spear hmm. on the on the faculty. Hmm. Alan Spear in 1967 had produced this stellar community study of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was like uh, the making of a ghetto in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I read that um, book, like religiously uh -huh. read that book. And I also read a lot of other urban stuff, but that was a real model. Yeah. When I hit graduate study, I had just done a summer um, graduate course because as high school teachers, you had to uh, periodically go back to school uh -huh. and you would have to take some courses. And in this case, I went, I took a course in urban uh, history and I wrote a paper on black urban uh, life. Uh, had I not written that paper, I'm not sure I would have found my way into That's anybody's graduate school yeah. because I didn't have, I didn't have a great writing sample oh, yeah. uh, to give before I wrote that yeah. paper. And, and at that point I was accepted into the program at Minnesota. Hmm. Um, and so, and so in other words, the ghetto dominated scholarship and yes. it was a process. And I was taken by the way it helped underst us understand a lot about black life. But then as we talk more about class and tried to figure out ways to incorporate a class dimension, it became clear that the ghetto model was limited yeah. and that it didn't, it didn't go far enough toward illuminating yeah. some other. And so that's why in a way I sort of flipped, you know, the coin in a way uh, over and and centered yeah. the dynamic of what I call proletarianization. Uh, I put that at the center of my analysis. Uh, and then I didn't deny that the ghetto was important, mm -hmm. but I, uh, I actually argued that you can understand the ghetto better by looking at proletarianization. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was my <laughs> argument. You know? Well, Joe, you know? I mean, this yeah. kind of like, the way you just explained that of like, really getting into the the literature on the ghetto, but then seeing its limits and going beyond it and coming up with a new framework that incorporates what came before and doesn't just overthrow it or throw it away. I mean, like, yeah. dude, that's your spirit in a way. Like when I read like the when I, <laughs> I teach, so I teach an appendix in Black Milwaukee, which is a historiographical essay on black urban life that you wrote. And I think it's just oh, one of the okay. great historiographical essays yeah. ever written. And I used to teach yeah. it like students how to do it. But then I was reading okay. Workers on Arrival. Um, and I, I, you know, I, initially I, I didn't notice the essay on sources at the end. I was just focusing on the book. You know, I, I didn't yeah. I didn't listen to Scott Sandage yeah. and read the table of contents closely enough. So well, a couple of days ago, okay. I started reading that essay on sources and Workers on Arrival. And you did it again. 
I mean, and so, <laughs> and so, like, I was gonna add because I think it's so important as a teaching thing. Like, yeah. your spirit, you really yeah. read people deeply, and you really mm -hmm. try to understand mm -hmm. the history and historiography of the literature on your topic. Yeah. But then you're 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 yeah. not uncritical. Like, you're critical, but you're generous. You know. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so I just wonder, <laughs> okay. like, how would you learn how to do that, man? Like, did... uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think graduate school was a major uh, place uh, for me to begin thinking about ways to grapple with large amounts of scholarship that you may not be able to really deal with in any great depth, but you really needed to understand at least the sort of the core, yeah. uh, uh, you know, contribution. And also, I just believe strongly that we don't ever just invent the wheel. We're building on uh, other people's work all the time. And it really helps to enrich our understanding when we can show that um, for a moment, we can just say, okay, let's try to understand this book from the vantage point of the author's real intent. Yeah. You know, what are they trying to do? And try to give them a, a, a stage in your work where you can acknowledge okay here this book really doesn't say everything i wanted to say but it says something yeah. important so i'm going to try to give them some credit there and it makes sentences i think for me a little bit more manageable mm -hmm. uh and also more defensible because people work hard to produce their yeah. work and even if you find other sources that can say this um what you wanted to say it makes sense to I think to acknowledge that there are some other people working in this vineyard and the more we can acknowledge that, the better we are. And it creates community, yeah. you know, people part of a network of scholars who build on each other, who appreciate and reinforce. So that's my, that's sort of my, yeah. my uh, way of wanting to deal with that kind of thing. And I know it's limited, you know, nobody can really grasp uh, all that's important in the field. And I always understand that, uh, when I look at the literature, I'm doing a piece yeah. of it in a way from my vantage point. But hopefully it is helpful. That's what I that's what It I is say. helpful, man. And, and I want to ask okay. you one more question before we kind of jump into um, talking about workers and arrival in, in detail. And do you consider yourself a labor historian? Is that part of your identity? You know, I, I came to labor so freight in a way. Because, as I said, my orientation uh -huh. and my foundation was grounded in a highly uh, race-conscious analysis of the African-American experience. So I consider myself an African-American. Okay, yeah. Right? And so that means that I take race seriously and I try to see how Black people across all kinds of internal divides, whether it's gender, class, age, generational, yeah. They, they, black people share something yes. uh, around that whole process of racialization that is taking place in America. So I try to claim, you know, I am an African American, but within that framework, I'm an, ur um, uh, an urbanist. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. I, I I claim the urban uh, myself as an urban historian um, in a real way. That sort of the setting in which most of my actual analysis takes place inside the urban context. And then on the other end of this, because I'm trying to develop a more class conscious mm -hmm. uh, study of the black experience, uh, I, I do claim, and I do that from the vantage point of labor and working class people. So I do claim labor 
as one of the areas that I am, you know, committed to. Yeah. Uh, rather than claiming that I'm a historian of the black middle class. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about the black middle class a lot, but I don't claim myself to be a historian of the black middle okay. class. Okay, yeah. And what, yeah, so that, so yeah, so it's uh, African-American urban and labor history. That's the sort of- Working sort of, class history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so jumping into workers on arrival, I mean, you know, we are, you know, we should know that Black people were brought to these shores, as you said earlier, to, as slaves who, you know, were lives were focused on agricultural production. But by the late 1700s, already there are populations of free blacks working in American cities. So, yeah. so tell us a bit about the genesis of the black working class and, you know, how it emerged and what its early characteristics were. Yes. Okay. Um, well, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is to acknowledge that the black urban working class and the enslavement of black people unfolded almost simultaneously mm -hmm. in the in the north and the south. Mm -hmm. And so some of the earliest residents uh, in New York, you know, Boston, Philadelphia. Williamsburg, all these places, right? Right, and then we got Charleston, New Orleans, yeah. Richmond, Baltimore and so on. So, so, so I see that. Uh, I, I try to make the point that, in many ways, black people entered the kind of urban port places. You know, places that were ports, cities, yeah. even before they started to ship out. Yeah. You know, to the plantation. Yeah. You know, and so that we need to really treat these environments in sync. Mm -hmm. Um, because they are unfolding almost simultaneously. Uh, and so that, uh, but I do make the point that the colonial period, you know, this, I, you know, for lack of, of a better term and way of framing it, I do treat the, the entire period before the Civil War pretty much as the pre-industrial yeah, age sure. in, in African, yeah. you know, in African-American life. So that... But and that it was a predominantly agrarian mm -hmm. age because most black people were in fact uh, cultivating sugar, cultivating tobacco, you know, um, rice, and cotton yeah. later. Cotton later, and I try to make the point that cotton is a later product because I think the popular community often think cotton was, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like an enduring almost unchanging that that was the crop. They don't realize that it was a process yeah. of different crops and that cotton came later. Mm -hmm. But once it came, it overwhelmed, yeah. you know, the economy. It became the driver, right. you know, of the uh, capitalist development of the nation. In many ways, the world, global yes. capitalism. Uh, so I try to make that point and that black people were at the center, at the labor center of this and you know there's a lot of literature as you know now um you know um uh johnson uh yeah, Beckert, yeah. uh baptist yeah, yeah. all of those guys they have really fleshed yeah. out the whole capitalist relationship to slavery and race yes. and so we got a good body of literature to build that economic you know scaffolding 
but I try to really uh, go directly to the experiences of blacks in these economies. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm, I, I'm very attentive, I think, to the workplace. Yeah. And so that in the workers on arrival, I really build upon, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, well, well, actually, I don't do too much of the agriculture and workers on arrival. Yeah, well, you don't have okay. to, right? It's but, not your but, focus. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, but I, I acknowledge yes. that. Um, and so, but then moving into the cities, I I, I try to make a point uh, that um, black people were not just general laborers in the cities, you know, uh, unskilled, whatever, however we want to put it. Uh, that they, they were craftsmen yes. men and women, and that was an important component of the pre-industrial workforce. That black people were part of a artisan yeah. class, and and in some ways, I argue that uh, the period from about the end of the American Revolution uh, to the first decade or two of the 19th century, that some people have suggested that that was a golden age of the black artisan, right. because because, you know, so there was a significant, you know, body of people who were carpenters, yeah. blacksmith, coopers, uh, all of those uh, craft. But by the um, late antebellum period, uh, these black craftsmen were on the down, down. Yeah, swing. dude, that was it was and, fascinating for me. You know, yeah. I love that early craft, yeah. uh, early early okay. Republic stuff. You know, I'm kind of nerdy about that stuff. Okay. Well, I didn't know this story. <laughs> okay. um, and then you kind okay. of, you know, you one of the stories you tell is that, you know, it, the reason it's on, one of the reasons it's on downturn is because it's kind of being attacked from all these different sides. There's mob violence. Yeah. There's European immigration. Yeah. Uh, there's all these efforts yeah. to so-called repatriate, you know, free blacks to Africa yeah. and other places. And as you put it, early African-American workers and their families would not take these limits on their freedom without a fight. So tell us a bit yeah. about how how they resisted and tried to make a space for themselves. Yeah, that's good. Lee, I'm really just um, uh, very appreciative of the way you have uh, really zeroed in on some of the things that I was hoping people would take <laughs> away from the book. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there there is this... Um, it's almost like the the old story. We would say that there are victimization histories yeah. of black people, yep. um, and and for many you know decades, we understood we had to write that history because there was so much denial of the way in which black people were exploited, denied rights, mm -hmm. and you know sort of trampled trampled on. And so we needed to write that history. Um, but I do give a lot of attention to the idea that, look, these people were not just, you know, victims of these conditions under which they lived and worked. Uh, they were also thoughtful people yes. who um, envisioned different ways that they could um, affect changes in their lives, both their, their work lives, the lives of their families, their communities. Yeah. And so... All along the way, whatever the work regimen may have been, and however unjust that regimen may have been, I tried to talk about ways that Black people intervene into that system, and they helped to modify some of the impact. Uh, and you know, one of the one of the things drawn directly from labor history, more generally, mm -hmm. is this whole idea of um, of um, 
uh, transiency, mm. you know, leaving a yes. job, you know, quitting, mm-hmm. quitting. And then in the case of the enslaved, fugitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fugitive just, you know, and so the fugitives in a way dovetail with the behavior of free workers yes. uh, is only that they are stealing away, yeah. right? Their own time, their own bodies. And then free workers are sort of saying, oh, I'm not going to. I'm out of uh, here, man. You know, they, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. That's it. And you hear a lot of that today, yeah. right? <laughs> so so that was one strategy, yeah. you know, and I like to make, make that. Because you see, that strategy um, created a lot of misinterpretation of the Black workers' experience. They were called unstable. Uh, they were not dependable because look at them. They're yeah. moving all the time from one job to the next. They don't stay in the place. They are not, mm. you know, they don't, they're, they, they're not stable. Right. They're not reliable. They're not dependable. Right. And so we had to reshape that narrative into one in which, wait a minute, did you talk to these people about why they're leaving? Yeah. Uh, and, and when you do investigate uh, the underlying causes for leaving, you begin to see a different interpretive frame uh, for understanding. So, yeah, so that's one strategy. Uh, But the other one, the other one, there are a lot of others, but uh, I put a lot of emphasis on their, um, you know, building families also. You know, they they work hard to build families and and to really create opportunities to really, um, you know, connect, you know, with their kin. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's that in a way was a strategy, but the community yes. building beyond that was especially vibrant. Uh, they uh, tried to build. Initially, they were informal networks. You know, with uh, different people would connect with each other without any formal apparatus, uh, but they knew that they could depend on each other in different ways. But then they started to build these organizations, and so churches, yes. fraternal orders, small businesses. All those things start to come to the fore. And so I like to, at one level, reinterpret uh, Black entrepreneurship as a labor strategy, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a strategy toward trying to become middle yeah. class. You know, so that if you're really a worker who, uh, you know, you feel like you've got skills, but those skills are not recognized, then you feel like maybe I could market my own. Uh, skills. Yeah. You know, I can go into the marketplace. Maybe I can even hire some other African-Americans and we can really liberate ourselves mm-hmm. uh, from these ways. You know, some of the... So, yeah, so there are yeah. a variety of tactics that I like to uh, explore and to bring to the f- f- forefront. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, you write mm-hmm. about how following the Civil War and emancipation, Black people initially, you know, often idealized a land ownership and agricultural life, but these dreams were undermined by a number of factors, including white power and eventually the rise of Jim Crow and all these kinds of things that are kind of familiar. So how did emancipation kind of set the stage for the rise of the black urban industrial class that you've been studying for so long? Okay. Yeah. uh, Excellent question. I, this period is, um, pivotal moment in African-American history, um, because for the first time, at least in legal terms, African-Americans are free. Uh, they are entitled uh, to the same rights, privileges, 
immunities, yeah. you know, as all other citizens. But uh, but the truth is they don't get equal access mm-hmm. uh, to those rights. Uh, but it's important. I, 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 I don't argue that emancipation was of no sure. consequence. Even even during those early years where we began to see the so-called black codes and all of the violence and all of the uh, suppression of freedom uh, of the emancipated people, I, I, I just can't make the argument that it was slavery by another yeah. name. You know, just it, 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 there was something different mm-hmm. about freedom. And so I try to make the point that uh, it was real. Blacks had more option, uh, but those options were Time it time and time again uh, by some practices uh, by almost everybody mm-hmm. played a role in in undercutting you know the the um, the state was a partner in suppressing mm. uh, the free engagement of blacks in the economy uh, of course former uh, landowners ex ex confederates they were very much involved in undercutting the capacity of black people to be free. And even the um, the philanthropists mm. or, or the reformers or or the people who came from, from the north to the south to sort of set up yeah, these schools yeah. and mis- missionary society, they also reinforced a kind of um, uh, um, a coerced yes. status for, for blacks. And, and the major way they did that is that they were so riveted to this ideal that black people had to be made to work for wages. Yes. And that, that, that if they were not forced to work for wages, they would not mm. work. So there was a real uh, racial stereotype operating among the most liberal yes. of black yes, allies. Yes. And that there was a sense that they needed some form of coercion uh, to do the work. And so some of these freedmen rural policies and so on, uh, they came close to denying people food and, and mm. shelter in order to force them into the workforce uh, with their former, you know, uh, owners. And, and so, yeah. yeah, and also with the, the northern capitalists moving south, they saw this emancipated black labor as a real boon to their own Jesus, riches. Yeah. And so, you begin to see them opening up timberland, opening up coal fields, uh, setting up cotton mills. Mm. And uh, so Northerners were very much, it was a collaboration. Yes. Northern and Southern capitalists, they collaborated on the exploitation of black labor. Mm-hmm. And so the emancipation period uh, really um, undercut, you know, the um, yeah. the freedoms and, and the labor um, experiences mm-hmm. of blacks. Uh, during that period. So, you know, the Great Migration in in many ways, I think is a fairly well-known story in U.S. history. I mean, there's been PBS specials and best-selling books on it. Um, You know, and it's important. It gives us, among other things, like cultural things like electric blues and, you know, urban jazz. I'm I'm a big, I'm a big John Lee Hooker fan and Chess Records fan and all that stuff, you know, and, you know, Motown and all this kind of stuff, these beautiful expressions of African-American urban culture. But, you know, I wonder what, you know, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is missing from kind of like standard accounts of the Great Migration that maybe we need to complicate this story a little bit? You know, I've seen the Great Migration undergo a profound change, you know, so um, at this point, uh, there are just a few areas that I could point mm-hmm. to 
uh, because, you know, for a long time, we just didn't treat the Great Migration as a process that Blacks themselves helped to uh -huh. shape. You know, it was always something that was done to Blacks. Even when they moved out of the South, they were not moving on their yep. own volition. Yep. You know, they were being, you know, pushed, mm -hmm. <laughs> pushed out. Um, and or pulled into the north, that that even mm. settling in northern industrial areas was not part of their, it, it was part of the recruiters uh -huh, in the northern uh -huh. industry going down and pulling them north. Yep. And they just didn't have very much agency in that process mm -hmm. at all. And so that's no longer a story, yeah. you know, that we have to correct. That story has been told. And by telling that story of black agency and the great migration, it just opens the door for us to see more vibrant parts of that. And I, I think the music and the art that you were talking yeah. about, um, that was a blind spot that people weren't treating it as much as a powerful mm. way in which black people were speaking uh, and shaping, yeah. you know, the, the black urban experience. So, you know, there's not a lot that I would uh, be able to turn mm -hmm. to, 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 to for you to think about the next wave of migration studies, except there is one. Um, recently, you know, like that moment I was telling you, the, the 400th year yeah. anniversary uh, of the African-American experience in America, you can see that sort of shaping. That's a different moment in black history and some other things happening. You know, like at that point, that's Obama. We've had the first Yes, yes. I watched his president, uh, right? swearing in with you in uh, the seminar room yeah. at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a fond memory so, of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because that was a major milestone. And so, um, so yeah, so I had to think about, uh, and see, that was such a great milestone that it forced us to see the contradictions in more stark terms than we had previously. Because most of us historians, we were convinced that we would have to wait another half yeah. a century or a century before that happened. And so we got caught off guard. <laughs> Black yeah. historians, historians, we got caught off guard. We didn't know how to yeah, quite yeah. even respond. I right? think you said that at the time, uh, so, so at least you were self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that was something. Um, but, but Lee, over the last five years, let's say over the last three mm -hmm. years, um, well, Trump was elected in 2016, yeah. right? So, so we can just say over the last five years or so. Um, and even over the last year, the landscape keeps changing, yeah. right? We keep getting these, these signals that are very mixed and, uh, you know, they're, um, I'll just say contradictory. You know, for example, the election, the midterm election 2022 in black history terms, man, produced some amazing performances yeah. on the part of blacks. Even when they lost the yep. election, they were making, you know, mm. making a bid and, and a serious yeah. bid and, and making serious inroads on the election, yeah. right? And so you have that happening. And then in the same year, I think roughly within roughly the same year, you have Buffalo, you know, like yep, yep, this, yep. you yep. know, mass killing in Buffalo in a supermarket. Yep. Uh, and then you get Katanji um, Brown Jackson mm -hmm. uh, becoming the first female. Yeah, Supreme Court. Supreme yeah. Court Justice. Yeah, and then not to mention um, 
vice president, mm -hmm. you know, of the of the United Kamala Harris. And so you try to, and so now this is the moment. And then we got the attack on the nation's capital, yep. um, and the threats to American democracy, and and now we have to as black labor and urban historian, we've got to write, and then we got the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We got the pandemic. So we're situated in this moment. And so to answer your question, the pandemic is the one I wanted to point to. I think the next wave of uh, migration research, urban research, got to take care of that health yes. issue. Got to connect African-Americans to uh, past pandemics, yes, epidemics, totally. past disease. I hear you. Past, yeah. you know, in the in the medical. So I think that is another frontier to be crossed. Yeah. In. And, and because many of these African-Americans, for example, if you say, what made black people migrate? Yeah. We're good at economics. We're good at education. Yep. We have not said that black people move to get better health. Yeah, care. totally right. You yeah, know? yeah. And frankly, uh, Lee and my own family. I have a brother who just wrote a memoir on his oh. life, but he incorporated the Charter family, and it's a memoir on medical experience. Oh, interesting. Because he was born with congenital heart uh -huh. disease. Um, and he had multiple heart operations across his lifetime. He's still living and, you know, doing pretty well, but struggling yeah. still, uh, you know, but he wrote this book. Um, and one of the things that stand out in that book to me is how our mother, after our father passed away, one reason we moved from coal camps to small town in Ohio mm -hmm is so he could be closer to yes. medical treatment. Yep, yep, yep. That there was no way he was going to get a heart you know, surgery yeah, you. In, in the cold yeah. town. So so, so that's an area that I think is wide open. Yeah, that's cool. You know, for, yeah, for this next mm -hmm. wave. And there's a lot of technology stuff. Oh, absolutely. Right down yeah. here in this medical, <laughs> this medical field. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, uh, so yeah, so that's an area. Yeah. And actually, I'm trying, I wrote an essay for a book called Pandemic Divide. Uh -huh. And I wrote an essay in there. And that's where I really go into details about the way African-American work mm -hmm. exposed them to all yes. these diverse diseases and opened the way, um, ultimately, uh, for something like, you know, COVID to hit with a vengeance. Yeah. Uh, on that particular population. That's great. I, I'll send you, I'll try to remember to send you, there's this, uh, there's an edit, no, collect, um, what do they call it? Special issue okay. where a bunch of historians okay. wrote about Thomas Piketty's new new book, Capital and Ideology. And one of oh, the one of the best essays in there is about um, inequality in health. Um, and oh, by yeah? a historian, oh. Johan Matthew, who I think is at Princeton or Rutgers, Rutgers maybe. And oh, I'll yeah. send it to you because I think it connects deeply to what you're talking about. We need to get more into the kind okay. of embodied history of health history and how it yeah. played a role in all this stuff. Yeah, I would yeah. like that. I would appreciate it. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about the the racial job ceiling? And one of the reasons this is kind of an industry in when black people started working in mm -hmm. industrial jobs. One of the reasons I'm I'm yeah. interested in this question is I see a tension here between the i mean in your you draw out this tension between the opportunities mm. that industry provided black mm. workers but also how there right. was um limits that they're constantly bumping up to exactly 
Well, Lee, I, I am just amazed at, you know, the way you've, you've dealt into these issues. That's a major issue in African-American labor and working class history. Uh, and see, one reason why it's such a significant and daunting part of the story is because the Great Migration generated a lot of excitement mm -hmm. among among Black people. I'm talking about working class, you know, like grassroots Black yeah. people, you know, from the bottom up. Uh, moving to Chicago was a great move for a lot of people. They celebrated that yes. move in no uncertain yes. terms. Um, and to Detroit, mm. to New York, all of those cities, uh, as difficult as life may have been, um, it was hard to squash that optimism yes. about life in those cities. Um, and part of it, no doubt, had to do with uh, the racial environment, you know, having to tiptoe around Southern Jim Crow on a day-to-day -day basis was different from having to live in Harlem or the south side of Chicago, even though we know that the roots of lethal policing thoughts Yes. Early in the Great Migration in those places. But compared to the South, you know, for at least a moment of the Great Migration, those things um, seem like, you know, there was a breakthrough, you know. So so the job ceiling and then getting jobs, by the way, let's say the First World War. Black people didn't get a lot of jobs above what we would call the baseline mm -hmm unskilled, so-called unskilled, general labor job. They were just getting them inside the okay. factory. But they, they, for the most part, that first wave did not get a lot of operative yeah. jobs, you know, jobs as operative. Um, and so they were more or less doing the same thing inside the factory that they were doing outside the factory. Yeah. But they were inside the industrial economy and therefore their proximity and their engagement with the workplace sort of opened up, you know, some channels yes. for them to experience some gradual movement into some of these production jobs. Um, but, you know, the meatpacking industry is a great yes. example where they were just cleaning. You, did you see that, that film called The Killing Floor? I haven't seen it yet, no. Oh, you, you with your labor yeah. interest, The Killing Floor would be a great okay. film for your undergraduates. Yeah, and, and it's just been refurbished and put out okay. again. David David Brody played a role in, in advising on that okay. film. And recently they just put it out on DVD again. So you can get okay, a, cool. get if you can, get a copy of that. It, and it shows black workers in there. And it also shows uh, black workers and white workers trying to bridge that, mm. that um, racial divide and create a union mm. in the... Um, meatpacking houses. Mm. Um, but yeah, the job ceiling, uh, it, in many ways, it was um, a ceiling that was reinforced by both industry mm. and workers, white mm -hmm. workers. White workers were very protective yes. of their, you know, their yes. turf uh, on those jobs. And so they created some pretty stiff barriers uh, that black people had to navigate in order to get into those and by the jobs. way i mean this is um it connects to our health discussion we just had too because like you know i know the automotive story uh 
fast yeah. because you know that's that okay. was my research early on and like you know black workers were often yeah. doing like painting and all these very dirty very that's health right. and, and detrimental jobs you, you know exactly yeah. exactly you got it and in fact this um essay that i wrote about this that was one of the you know very hazardous jobs yeah really uh undercut the health of black workers so yeah, so that job ceiling, I would just say that it was a pretty stiff, uh, and and also the skilled trade yes. unions, you know, the skilled craft unions, they had explicit barriers yes. on black people entering these trades. So, um, you know, going into a factory and having to become an operative yeah. was a step step down for many white workers. But once they had to do that work, they weren't about to relinquish yeah. it uh, for black people to easily come in and become machine you know operation. so let's carry i mean one one of the things i i it's really starting to come out to me in in our discussion of your book is this kind of dialectic where you move into a historical moment in the in the book and then you then you the dialectic is instead of allowing the victimization narrative to reign in every historical moment you you then you turn to what black people were doing you know in the, through their own efforts so you know, with the with the yeah. with the racial job ceiling, you write African American workers deplored their tenuous hold on urban industrial jobs, homes, social services, and justice before the law during the years of the Great Migration. And you say, you know, yeah. some considered her heading back south, but most stayed and and worked to to yeah. you know strengthen their hold mm -hmm. uh, position in society. So, what are some of the ways they reacted, you know, and tried to do that? Yeah. Well, again, um, you know leaving jobs yes. <laughs> on a regular basis that turn that turnover rate was enormous yes. uh and um the other way is that they started to organize uh, their own you know labor mm -hmm. unions um to try to get some traction in jobs but the ironic part is the most famous of these labor unions by the 1920s was the brotherhood of sleeping car porters in the railroad mm. and those jobs were essentially domestic jobs right right right, right. Uh, cleaning training yeah. cars but there were some black railroad unions and uh, uh, uh some what you might call um carpenters yeah. unions, some brick mason unions all black uh -huh. unions. that was another strategy that they used to try to compete um in the labor force and to create more opportunities for themselves. Yeah. And and during this period, uh, one of the things I'm beginning to look at more now is that uh, some of them actually started construction companies. Oh, fascinating. Uh, that yeah. they would try to, yeah, they would try to employ their own mm -hmm. people, get contracts to build black churches, uh -huh. repair black churches, other institutions to really help themselves. Yeah. Um, and and also of course they they joined the NAACP and and started to level yeah. legal uh, struggles against some of these barriers that they knew were unjust and that should have been challenged you know legally and in the courts. Yeah. So the strategies are numerous. Yeah. Um, and but the way I argue for the interwar years is that ultimately uh, there was a convergence of middle and working class black activism hmm. so that racial barriers were so strong that limited black access to education uh to training especially hospital and nursing mm -hmm. you know schools that there was a way in which black communities converged huh. uh -huh. and created a sense of solidarity in building some of these 
uh, separate and what I call the creation of the black metropolis. Yes. They start to build their own their own city within mm-hmm. the city uh, to try and service their own needs uh, within that, including employment. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the great arguments for black business was that it becomes a vehicle for mm-hmm. employing black mm-hmm. people. Uh, so black business people were, were pushing that line and then black working people were also, of course, pushing to mm-hmm. get alternative employment. So the uh, and so there's a lot in going on, a lot yes. of strategies cross-cutting, some of them in tension, yeah, you know, yeah. because there are times when when the strategies were in opposition, yeah. you know, to each other. Yeah, and I mean, I should just say, I mean, like, there's so much in the book that we can't cover in, a, in an interview, but like, but one yeah. of the things that I really like about the book is that you do go over through so many strategies, so I think I would just direct readers, you yeah. know, that's one great reason to read the book. Um yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so one of the things, you know, I think that this is well known in your historical circles, but I was thinking about, you know, how in popular culture we tend to focus on the story of the civil rights movement on segregation and like buses and lunch counters and all these things. And for good reason. Right. I mean, there's there's those are important right. stories. But what your book really draws out so centrally is the, the labor and work as- aspect of the you know, of the, the, the yeah. what you call the modern black freedom struggle. So, you know, but you say you write yeah. by, by 1970, the modern black freedom struggle had demolished the Jim Crow order. And, we, you know, I think we know in general outlines that story. But, you know, how did it yeah. how did it open up new opportunities for black people in, in, when it came to employment? Yeah, yeah. You know, that is a brief moment. It really yeah. is a very brief moment. Uh, but when you look at the statistics on black uh, population movement into skilled mm-hmm. jobs uh, and into jobs that are defined as middle class, yes. uh, the, num- the numbers increase significantly. Mm-hmm. I don't have the figures in my head right now. but and, and also the numbers increase significantly from the bottom mm-hmm. up. You know, like it's not just that There's mobility. only middle class. Yeah, there was great mobility out of the black working class in two what would be considered a professional mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of business uh, yeah. class jobs. So, so, but it's a, it's a brief moment, um, uh, Lee, and it's one of the most difficult transitions to try to really um, navigate and articulate yes. uh, in a book. But I, I tried to make it clear that the civil rights movement was a success in significant right. ways and that we can't we can't you know dismiss just like you were saying about slavery know, the, earlier that something real changes yeah right yes that's right and that's what i argue for this yeah. you're right that's exactly it's an argument that um but then pretty quickly and also the laws you know you start getting uh court decisions that support uh affirmative yeah. action that support more vigorous movements to eliminate the color line um, that call labor unions to task for their discriminatory yeah. policy, call businesses to task. So there's a moment there where the state seems to be a real ally for black yeah. people, federal state in particular. And so I, I like to make that point. Uh, but that moment of opportunity closed yeah. pretty quickly. Um, and it's, it's a devastating um, yeah. closing um, because African-Americans, uh, just as they're making that breakthrough, uh, that whole 
Well, dude, that's where I want to go next. Yeah. I mean, I feel like... No, okay. reading your book, I experienced like this acute irony that I think I, I knew about and even, yeah. I would say even knew very well on a like a purely intellectual yeah. level. But then it, it just hit me yeah. on this emotional level, like a gut punch, you know. Yeah. And the irony is, that, yeah. you know, you write that by 1970, yeah. the modern black freedom, you know, I already yeah. quoted this modern black freedom struggle had demolished yeah. the Jim Crow order. Well, then we're into the 1970s yeah. when the U.S. economy hits the yeah. skids. By the late 1970s, yeah. we have a fresh wave of deindustrialization and plat cultures. Yeah. So the modern black freedom yeah. struggle undermines, you know, it doesn't completely destroy, yeah. but it undermines a terrible system of, of oppression. But then it's right into yeah. real economic hardship, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's part of the African-American story, historically, yeah. you know, the way... You make certain strides forward, and then you hit this wall, mm. brick wall. You face another uh, crisis of, yeah. of um, you know, survival, and uh, yeah. And see, right now, Lee, I think that what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to uh, revamp this narrative a little bit. Um, you know, I wrote this book, finished this book in around 2018, yeah. right? Um, I think now, in the context of knowing more about how the post-industrial period is unfolding, mm -hmm. uh, we and I, in in my book, let's just say I tended to focus on um, deindustrialization and the downside of that process for black workers. Yeah. They start to enter the service industries, right. a low wage, few benefits. Uh, very very difficult jobs, yeah. you know, to 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 navigate, and they suffer. That's that's sort of the story right, right there. And they suffer. Not without that. They, as you point out, they're they're yeah. reacting. They have agency. They're doing things. You draw on the literature exactly. to, to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but here's the other thing. Um, recently, I'm working on something with another scholar, mm -hmm. three scholars, in fact is another book on an edited collection of essays on the black urban experience. Okay. And one of the arguments that um, uh, our essay makes, and you know Clarence Lang? No, I don't. Know. Clarence Lang is an African-American historian who wrote a book on St. Louis. Okay. And uh, Clarence has brought to our attention a body of work on Latino history, uh -huh. uh, like late 20th, early 21st century, uh, where scholars are beginning uh, to look at this deindustrialization yes. uh, from the vantage point of how African Americans, Latino workers, workers at the bottom, they were not only suffering from the downside of the industrial economy, but they were fueling the revival of the new economy. Hmm. And that's a big, big, huh. big difference yeah. in argument. And um, the new, the new economy means get... different things in different circles. So what's it mean here? Yeah. It, it means the jobs that are fueling the health. Okay, industry, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And in Pittsburgh, you got yeah, Gabriel Wynant's book system. and stuff you, like that. Yeah, you, you got it exactly. Yep. And so, and he makes that argument yeah. too that black people are working. And so, but really, that's an argument to be pushed more explicitly. Totally. Is that um, that black people are again helping to fuel the economy? Totally. Uh, in ways that people don't often, they don't often. Oh, yeah. The home health care workers are predominantly minority folks and they're not well paid. And like, it, it's a real issue. Right. You know, I and oh, so, go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to say, but to treat that as a way of fueling 
the economic vitality yes. of UPMC. Oh yeah. As opposed, yeah, you know, yeah. as opposed to just um, forcing blacks into another era of poverty. Those are two different dynamics around the same issue, yes. right? And so that's why I think, you know, just moving back and forth between these different processes yes. is going to be very important. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I okay. so I grew uh-huh. up I grew up in Joliet, Illinois. I don't know if I ever talked to you about this. So, oh, um, I, I I didn't know you were from yeah. Joliet, but when I was in Evanston, Illinois, as an undergraduate, I learned about the prison. Yes. Yes, to the two prisons, Joliet and, and, and Stateville. Judge, yeah, that was our economy, yeah, man. Well, that's, what yeah. I, that's the only thing I understood about <laughs> well, Joliet. So okay. it was an industrial, it was okay. a steel town, um, a very racially diverse okay. place. It was a very urban place. Um, it, okay. My high school had about 2,000 kids in it, and uh, it was about one-third okay. white, one-third black, and one-third Latino. And, oh, and so, is that right? Oh, so this man. is, you know, there was a lot of poverty by the ninety, you know, the nineties when I was uh, I was a teenager. Okay. Um, but it, this okay. is what kind of what drives my I care about this stuff because you know I come from a very particular yeah. place and I saw uh, people struggling okay. and you know this is kind of drives my um my uh, my whole interest okay. and, and I also am working on a, a research project. It has this kind of funny working title called a brief history of shit jobs which is like the rise of like bad oh, yeah. you know bad oh. employment <laughs> since the 70s basically so yeah you know, one of the stories i've really gotten interested in and i wanted to get your take because it's something you've been thinking about for a long time is i become interested in debates in the 80s and 90s about kind of urban black ghetto stuff like william julius wilson's yeah. when work disappears mm-hmm. You know, eventually you have yeah. Thomas Segrew's, uh, you know, The Origins of the Urban Crisis book. And I was actually reading right. Joe Trotter in, in this edited volume, <laughs> The Underclass Debate, Views from History. Um, and, you know, and, oh, yeah, and yeah. so there's this whole debate, you know, like the deindustrialization has <laughs> given birth to this new new underclass yeah. that was like, you know, like the right. emphasis. So I just yeah, wonder, yeah. you know, and you deal with yeah. it in the interpretive essay, the essay on sources. Yeah. I just wonder, where do you, where do yeah. you think this kind of story comes down? Where are you at with this story at this point? About the, the urban, um, deindustrialization. Yeah, and, the, and the, yeah. Um, the underclass and all these kinds of debates. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I think that um, one of the things about the underclass um, debate that Wilson, in a way, initiated, right. you know, uh, is that um, initially it did the same thing that some of these earlier, these other earlier studies did, and that was to ignore yeah. the agency of the very poor people that they were talking about. That that was my big deal yeah, yeah, with yeah. some of the the earlier. Um, but then Wilson came back with a, a volume called When Work Disappears. Yeah, you that's know that the one, one I just quoted. Yeah, yeah. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what <laughs> I thought. Okay, the, the other one was The Truly Disadvantage. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, but then that one gives a little more attention to the experiences of the workers right. uh, and the poor, you know, uh, and also a more ethnographic, yeah. right? A more ethnographic uh, perspective. So, so my my thinking is that um, we need to do more with the issue from the vantage point of yes. those people who are defined in those terms, yeah. you know, and to really flesh that out, and also to not treat them as permanently divorced from the workplace um, because they are, you know, informal, under-the-table work is an ongoing part of their lives. Uh, And uh, so almost all of them are working 
uh, in some form. Uh, so to treat them as a segment uh, divorced from the workplace, I think is totally. uh, problematic. We have a trouble dealing um, with transiency, like you said earlier. I, just in terms yeah, of thinking, we have yeah. trouble dealing with it, I think, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Do you know a book on Milwaukee called um, Evicted? Yes, I know that book. That's a great book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's relevant to yeah. this story that we're talking about. But that one is a great victimization dimension to yeah. all that. Um, but I, there may be some things. I'll have to take another look. But there may be things in there that give you a sense of the agency of these yeah. people. But I... I read that book quickly um, for a perspective, you know, in yeah. this period, and and I picked up more 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 of the downside than than anything. Else. I hear you. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about these how these yeah. structures are leading to suffering and harm, right? Um, and but we yeah. don't, you know, some of the other books you write about in the sources essay really clearly yeah. focus on this agency thing yeah. and are focusing on how people yeah. are reacting and, and, and yeah. working with their yeah. systems they're living in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had one other yeah. question for, oh, so, go ahead, Joe. You, no, no, I just yeah. wanted to say, yeah. So, so I think my perspective on this is still Evolving. taking yeah. shape. Okay. Yeah. Because, because we're still in yeah, the moment, right. right? We're not quite, we're not quite out yeah. of that de-industrial, this, this new configuration is, no. It's still unfolding. No, I yeah. think it's feeding all the okay. Trump and all this other crap very much, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the other question I wanted to ask you about, I, I one of the people I've started to focus on in a, as a character in this new um, book project is actually Obama. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting okay. with his early days as a community organizer because that the organization okay. he worked oh. on with in Calumet in the yeah. South Side was basically f yeah. focused on deindustrialization and job loss in black communities, yeah. right? And okay. so I think I'm really okay. interested in his early work, you know, as a, as a okay. young guy. And, and so I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, do you have any tips for me on, on things I should oh, look at? Oh, no, I think, you're, <laughs> I think you're already on the right, right track. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, because I, I thought about Obama's election and his work. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't get into it as much as you're going to, but I, I, I felt that his candidacy was grounded in the working class. Yes. You know, the way the working class uh, were experiencing certain issues and the way they could be mobilized uh, as voters in this yeah. uh, new politics. You know, so I'm glad to see you do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there's unfortunate well, like parts him. of him. Like he becomes in the, by 2006, he gives this or 2006, yeah, he gives this talk, 21st century schools for 21st century jobs, which is kind of really oh, yeah. buys yeah. into like education as the answer to all social problems in the a way problem. that, you know, there's yeah. there's some unfortunate sides of his yeah. story too, but I just think he's a fascinating okay. character to kind of yeah. tr trace through the time. Oh man, so, yeah. Well, look, I'm delighted to hear you talk about yeah. this project. This, this, I think is very worthwhile. And I think you are very well situated to do that kind yeah. of work. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, this has just been a delightful conversation with yeah, you. Yeah, you do, Joe. Uh, and, yeah, and, and and when you, you know, have something you published or want me to look at, I'll be happy to yeah. look at Can you tell, so yeah. can you just, mm. to end up, can you just tell people what you're working on now? You kind of talked about this edited volume you're working on. Do you have any other irons in the fire right now? <laughs> 
Yes, I do. I have a number of things that I'm working on. A lot of this is synthesis. Yeah, work. You you're know, good at it. So trying good. to draw together. <laughs> you're trying to draw together. Well, the, the most important one is the uh, book on African-American uh, uh, health care okay. and in historical perspective. Uh, I, I did a, a short essay yeah. for a book called The Pandemic Divide, and it's a collection of essays that tries to make sense of the impact of the pandemic on black communities. Uh, and that essay um, looks at African-American work yeah. uh, from the colonial era. It builds on the uh, Workers on Arrival book, but it delves deeply into the rural nice. experiences yeah. of blacks uh, in, 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 in the first part of the book and talks about cotton, rice, tobacco, sugar, uh, all those jobs and connect those jobs to a deleterious health Absolutely, impact yeah. on black workers. Yeah. And then I take it to the, um, you know, the early emancipation period through to the present. And it is it, the consistent focus is on, you know, we talk a lot about um, the pandemic has to be understood in historical perspective, mm -hmm. but often people just invoke history. They don't really nail the historical study down and try to systematically uh, trace out the impact of yes. that historical yes. process on the present. So that's what I try to do in that essay. But then I'm now trying to flesh the, that essay out into a short yeah. book uh, that talks about black health across uh -huh. time, but using the lens of occupational hazard as a real uh, dimension yeah. uh, that we need to pay attention to. So that's that's one item. Um, the other one, I want to talk about all the things that may never come <laughs> to fruition, but we are yeah. We are doing <laughs> we are doing a, a book on um, uh, it's a collection of essays on black life in America uh -huh. from the colonial period to the present. So there's uh, about 10 specialized essays on different aspects of black mm. life over that period of time. And we try to use this book to say what next for black urban okay. history. Uh, and the University of Pittsburgh Press has given us a contract quite a long time ago, we should say. And so we've just had to keep adding to this. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now now we are at the point where we're saying by the first of 2023, we hope to be able to send it to the press and let them um, make some decisions about you know, publication. Amazing, Joe. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh -huh. Workers on Arrival is such a great book. And I really appreciate you Thank taking the time. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. And best wishes for all the work you are doing. And thanks for doing this work. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. 
For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.